0: We're back! Hello, Jonathan. How's it going, MP?
1: Yes, good. Well, it's actually the second day of Christmas as we film this, and as you have seen on Facebook, I have built a village scene under my Christmas tree. It's phenomenal. Have
0: you got an advent calendar? Obviously. What's in yours? I don't know,
1: because I think it's been slightly melted, so you can't work out what any of the things are.
0: I've got a Maltesers advent calendar.
1: Oh, no, I've just got a a quidder. Has
0: your dog got one?
1: No. No? He's a dog.
0: Right. Hello, and welcome to IRC Book Club, the show where every week Michael and I... Read a book, deconstruct, reconstruct, analyze and piece together all the important bits of some of the most legendary sales texts in the history of humanity itself. And this week we're on a new book, Selling to the C-Suite by Nicholas A.C. Reed and Stephen J. Bistritz, comma, Ed. I'm not quite sure what comma, Ed means, but I'm sure we'll find out when we meet Nick and Stephen at some point.
1: Ladies and gentlemen... Welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club.
0: Have you enjoyed this one, Mike? It's
1: a good book, right? Good book. Dense.
0: Bit more dense than the last one we read, which was a quick and easy read, wasn't it? Very the, dense. The Near this. Isle book.
1: Very dense, but good. Dense yeah.
0: and you. Yeah, the way... Because I read it late, if I'm honest... You always do. I've, pa- I've power read it over the weekend because um, I've been doing a lot of other reading and sometimes the book club books fall down my general reading list in favour of other stuff. And as I power read it over the weekend, y- you'd kind of set me up for not enjoying it, actually.
1: No, all I said was it's
0: dense. It's I think because it's dense you've, you, you've, uh, and it's taken up your time, you've been a bit frustrated with it. but I, I've actually, no, 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 I thought it was good. I've got a lot of takeaways from this one this some really good takeaways still not as many as I got from combo prospecting but I'll tell you what I've got a lot of takeaways so in this show today we're going to cover the forward which is actually worth talking about the preface is actually, yeah. which is actually worth talking about chapter one which is called when do executives get involved in the decision process and chapter two which is all about what he calls marketing to the c-suite so shall we begin by all means so the for, I think the first most important thing is, the foreword to this book is written by Neil Rackham.
1: It's a good start, isn't it?
0: Yeah. You know, if you've got Neil Rackham writing the forward to your book on sales, you're getting the blessing of the king, aren't you?
1: He's, he's one of the, uh, you know, the best well-known, isn't he? There's no yeah, you know,
0: really. I've I mentioned later on in some of my notes in the book about spin selling, but, you know, when Neil Rackham's saying this is a good book. And when he's saying it's great, I, I think that it's really useful. He uh, And in the foreword, he does mention a couple of things. He talks about how when economies go down, decisions go up. A purchasing decision that is made in good times at middle management level requires active participation from the top when company survival is at stake. And actually, I did write, that's a bit dated. And then I wrote about a minute later, are you sure? Could that not become very relevant in the next year or two? Well, there's a boom and bust every ten year cycle. Would Correct, you, and you, we're you, we're getting right point? to the back of a ten year right to the back of a ten year cycle where a few people might get found out a little bit about true sea level selling. So it, it's not inconceivable he's got a point. Um, and he, he, he talks. The other thing he says in the foreword here, which I thought was not quite right, was he starts talking about how does a CEO make an impact. The fashionable answer has been acquisition. Grow the company by buying your competition. But in today's environment, raising the capital for acquisition has become next to impossible. Well, that's not true, actually. There's so much capital floating around. Everybody's acquiring everybody. But I think the sea level selling climate is going to go through some significant changes. So I thought it was a really interesting foreword, A, because it's from Neil Rackham, and he makes this final point at the end of his forward, which is, uh, the new salespeople are highly skilled value creators who live by ingeniously solving customer problems. The measure of these new salespeople is the value they create, and to create maximum value, they must understand the issues and concerns of their sea level customers. This book is timely and essential reading for them, so it's quite the blessing, isn't it? It's
1: good. I think it's interesting before we get into it, is I read the book, and obviously I've spent 20 years placing salespeople, pretty much 99% of whom profess to sell at sea level no. Was well, it no? They do actually profess to sell at yeah, sea level. Yeah, they do profess they to do so. Do sell at sea level. And I read it and thought, I wonder how many of the people who profess to sell at sea level, if this book was the measuring stick, actually have the capability to sell at sea level. Not many.
0: How interesting that you have thought about that independently, because I've had some very similar thoughts, and I'm going to come to uh, uh, later on in the chapters what I refer to as a sea level elephant in the room. Which the book completely misses, which is about culture and the individual personality characteristics and socio-demographic characteristics of the individuals involved in a theoretical sea level sale. And we'll come back to it. Yeah. So in the in the preface, then what we do get is a, a preface which explains that. To be fair, and I wrote it, I think. Uh, about three or four pages in, that there's some real rigour here in the research that was done.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting you say that because there's a lot of research done and he talks about the research a lot and, you know, bloody bar. But what's interesting is when he then makes claims or they then make claims later in the book, you think, well, actually, they've done the research to back up what they're saying.
0: Yes, Um, and I I, I think hence why Neil Rackham's...
1: Neil Rackham-esque, isn't
0: it? it, it? Hence why it's had an endorsement from somebody like Neil Rackham because there's we've read a couple of other books on Book Club where they've claimed to do quite rigorous research where you and I were a little bit, when we dug dug very quickly beneath the surface, it was clear that there wasn't as much rigour. It's clear here that there has been significant wow, rigour.
1: We, we read one about where they had the idols in it, whatever that oh. book was. That was clearly for that author just to try and sell to Cisco and Oracle.
0: Yes. Whereas this is a study of sea, sea level selling and there is, there is some serious rigour in it. Um, yes. So, uh, and they come up with some really interesting points here in terms of real changes. They talk about uh, the advent of social media platforms and how that's changed. Yes. I, I have a bit of a theory about this, and, and I'm, I am going to challenge the book a little bit. Um, obviously, they talk a lot about trusted advisor status. This is the first book we've done on Book Club where I haven't wanted to smash the author in the mouth for using the word trusted advisor.
1: Yes, he explains it well. There's a, there's one of the chapters he talks about, the four different phases. Yeah. And The four different levels of communication. And then
0: what he talks about is the second edition of Selling to the C-Suite is in response to three key changes. So this is the second edition of the book, and they have modernised it to account for, one, the advent of social media platforms. Now, I have a theory, which is I, I know a few guys who are genuinely true chief executive level chaps. Yeah. I mean, I'm talking million pound a year earners. You know, I know one that lives in a house where he genuinely doesn't know how many bedrooms he's got. Um, he just doesn't use any social media of any sort at any time ever, 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 ever. In fact, he doesn't have any social media profiles.
1: Okay.
0: Um, but he's a C-level guy, if not possibly a bit more senior than that, given he's more of a chairman-level guy now uh, at this point in his life and his career. But he just doesn't do social media. Um And I challenge the extent to which truly C-level individuals use social media. I I know know. Elon Musk does.
1: Well, it depends who they are and what they're doing. But actually, do you reckon Elon Musk runs his own LinkedIn
0: profile? I don't think he runs his own LinkedIn profile, but he clearly loves his own Twitter profile. Um, Because there was that whole big thing with telling him to shut his mouth from the shareholders.
1: I don't know. I don't have an interest in him, actually, so I don't know.
0: Yeah, but I think very few C-level executives are really into that. Then he talks about something that is that is relevant, which is he's saying digital natives who grew up with technology have now joined the ranks of the executives people are selling to. According to the US, blah, 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 blah. so what he's saying is you've got new companies now that have got C-level owners who are Generation Y and Generation Z
1: Yeah, who grew up with social media.
0: Who grew up with social media, grew up with technology, and you're selling to a very different kind of animal now. So I get that, and I think it's great that they have gone back and written a second edition of the book as a result. I'm not going to get into the acknowledgements. We are into chapter one. When do executives get involved in the decision-making process? What do you make of this chapter, Mike? What's
1: interesting about this? You read the first title, and a lot. I can't remember which book it was now because you read that many of them, but a lot of the books talk about chief execs getting involved later on in the decision-making process. Yeah. And for it being much harder to influence people. Um, and it'd be much harder to influence somebody's decision. Whereas what this guy is going to say in chapter one, in his very wordy manner, um, is he's going, to, he's going to talk about the fact that there's two points to get involved with, with C-level execs. One is, before the project's a project. yeah, Then you miss out the middle bit. And then later on in the project, when they're making a the decision,
0: and, and, I and that was great. Actually. I thought that, I found that really interesting. So, what the, the key premise of this particular chapter is is the the research and the evidence is very clear, which is that actually, c level executives are involved in a deal before it's instigated, or a project, or a search it's not, for a solution. It's not a
1: project, is it? They're, they're, it becomes a project and they go and get somebody else to do it
0: correct then they then then delegate the actual analysis of potential suppliers to somebody else and then they come in at the last minute and sign off yes and then are involved after the sign off to check that they've spent their money wisely and I thought that was really useful and it effectively sets up a key premise of the book which is if you really are selling to the C-suite, you've got to be in there early, and you've got to be in there with something useful that's shaping and crafting the solution. Well, he talks about the, the good yeah.
1: I, mean, I don't know if it's in this chapter, but he talks about bringing stuff to the party that the chief exec didn't know was going to be germane to them.
0: Yeah, and he, his point is, he said, salespeople now need to work harder than ever to be seen as relevant. And what they're talking about, you know, as, as a lot of our authors have talked about, is we've got this changing world now where... Actually, you know, borders are out of business, Lo- lots of companies have changed, the business world has changed, and actually a lot of information that is out there now, C-level executives can find themselves. Mm. If they really are worried about something, and he talks a lot later on about how, where they search, how they he's search. He's
1: talking about more than that, actually, because there's on page, bottom of page five, top of page six, whichever it is, it talks about how the fact that we're all becoming very ad- advertising resistant...
0: Extremely so,
1: which we all are. You know, you get you get adverts in your social media or whatever, and your brain blocks them out. Yes, it just it sort of doesn't see the advert. That's
0: before some people are actually using ad blocking kit.
1: Yeah, your brain just blocks it out, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, so what these, you know, what, what what these guys are talking about is they're talking about taking some value to your clients before they realise that that is going to be a problem. And the best one, actually, I've always thought is HMV. You know, HMV were into streaming music before Spotify.
0: They were the first stream... I I had a HMV streaming account back in... Christ, when did we start Inward Revenue Consulting? I don't know,
1: but my point is with HMV
0: is... Before the turn of the decade.
1: ...is whoever their ad agency is didn't listen to the information that was given to them, which said... The way people are consuming music is changing. You've got the best solution. You're not advertising it right.
0: And the CEO, somebody told the CEO, don't worry about streaming. It's all right. We'll keep selling CDs.
1: And that is that is sort of a good analogy for this book, which is a good salesperson yep. would have got into HMV first and said, listen, there's these fellas, Spotify going to come and try and eat your lunch? There's Apple, all this kind of stuff. You need to stay ahead of the curve. This is what you need to do. Somebody sold them the right technology yep. to stream but nobody sold them the right advertising platform to get it out in social media, and they got beat. And what this chapter is about is is about speaking to the chief exec of HMV in 2005, saying you've bought the tech. Now what you should do is advertise the fact you've bought the tech. Yeah, And that's the kind of value that you're talking about. They were miles and of, ahead. And of course, if you've done that with HMV and you've been the ad agency you would have made millions and millions and millions and millions of pounds.
0: Correct. If he'd had a trusted advisor who he could listen to who said, the kids are going to stop buying CDs, mate.
1: You, you, Your technology platform's right, but you're not advertising to them in the right way.
0: Yeah, the kid's going to stop selling CDs. You've got to close the stores and move on.
1: Yeah. And he was halfway there, or she was halfway there, the chief executive of yeah. HMV. And that's sort of like the premise of this chapter. I did put on page. Somebody. And it's
0: somebody... And, and, you know, we'll come to... We'll, we'll talk about it a bit more, Mike, about the whole C-level thing. One of the things I think the book misses is he doesn't talk enough about having the nuts. It's
1: not relevant for this book, though, is
0: it? It's, it's not, but it's an, it, it, it's an it's an it's an interesting element. Is actually, I think, part of what makes people a good sea level seller is having the nuts to walk into a room and say, "Listen, mate, I'm telling you now, this is where the world's going."
1: Yeah, but this book shouldn't be addressing that. I don't think. So I know I'm on page 10, Jonathan. Where are you up to? 12. Page 12. So, so on page 10, it says executive involvement in the buying cycle. And really, this is the bit where it talks about where the execs get involved yep. in the buying cycle, um, which we've just been talking about, which I thought was very good.
0: Yep. And he talks a little bit about where they're searching, which is really interesting. I thought I was all right about you know how search results come and what comes up if you search. His point is... The, you know, he, he's saying, if you search for customer relationship management, there's 17 million hits. Boy, well, says customer
1: growth, there's 326 million hits.
0: Yeah. And so it, it, in many respects, when it, a lot of it is so noisy now for a C-level exec, they can't, in the early days of the internet, they could go online, search CRM, Salesforce had come up, a couple of other bits, and they'd think, right, okay, I'm doing my own research. Now, actually, you've got a cut and through. What's
1: good about it, actually, that it's very, it's very relevant to our market. Because it's it's very geared around technology sales. As a
0: book, yeah, this is uh, in many respects possibly the most relevant in that I respect. So, so I, I'll tell you what I did. Like Figure one point two on page sixteen. If you if you're out there, listeners and readers, um, I love this four stages of sales proficiency oh, model. The same thing yet. I really yeah. liked that. So you've got stage one, which is almost you know real commo- a, a commodity. Well, he calls it commodity supplier. Stage two is. <laughs> emerging resource stage three you're a problem solver and stage four you're actually a trusted advisor and what the differences are between those i've seen a very similar model on a few other occasions yeah
1: yeah i mean it's it's not it's not a, a new model that. yeah albeit the headers might be different i think what's interesting about it i think it's excellent that my nervousness is if say a client of ours you know so i've got a low code client at the minute so I, I want i want a you know, somebody that can get to trusted advisor. Mike, that's what the candidate I want. you now, Not many of them actually exist.
0: What? Well, well, not by this definition. No, no. So, how many of them objective to provide leverage? Your contribution to the company a strategic resource? Not many. Your relationship with the executive interdependent. That's
1: not, very interesting. I went. I, I not did, many. I did a social thing. I got invited to, by one of our clients to a social thing, and uh, what happened was, it was me, the client. There's quite a few other people. There was the client's hot um, prospect, which was a uh, some C-level exec from a utility company, and that person was there with a partner from EY. Right. It was almost like, well, I didn't get involved in something to to this person. Why would I? It's not, you know, my my prospect. But it's interesting because everybody that was trying to talk to the C-level exec from the utility company had to talk to the EY partner.
0: And the Literally, EY guy was his trusted advisor. They were
1: turning... It, this person was turning to the EY partner all the time. Almost sort of didn't really answer the questions. So actually this company is a top, top, top company. They would say that they are trusted advisors to the C-level exec of that utility company. Tell you now, having seen it, they're not.
0: What? Your client's not?
1: No. No chance.
0: But the guy from EY is? Yeah. He's a true oh, actually, trusted advisor. He's in how many people actually He's in that
1: influence... Over sea C-level exec to that degree, I think very few. I think I think less than one
0: percent of the one percent.
1: Oh, i was going to say less than tenth of a percent.
0: Yeah, one percent of the one percent. I think,
1: and it's good to aim for it. You know, without a doubt, these four stages are excellent. But, but it'd be pretty hard to get there. I and that it's
0: not because you and I are dealing at the wrong level in our in our no, world. No. Not because I, you
1: know,
0: it, it's just not that real. There's. Okay, maybe if you work at Hewlett-Packard and you've got a £30 million supply contract with Company X, but I actually think that in a lot of deals, and he does say, you know, a lot of these deals are pushed down to mid-management because the rising tide has floated a lot of boats and perhaps sea level executives don't quite feel the need to be as in control of some of these projects as perhaps they once were. I read a really interesting article recently. Pricey. It was all over one of the broadsheets. Um, I think it. it well, no, sorry. I, I think know. it was in Forbes. <laughs> I think it was in Forbes where it was talking about how CIOs can't quite work out and are struggling to find competitive advantage in key technology procurements nowadays. And that ninety percent of technology procurement, ninety-five percent of technology procurement, is still keeping the lights on procurement, irrespective of how much the salesperson blags mm. that there's competitive advantage in it. And I think as a result, that's why. Yeah, okay, there are people that sell to CIOs, but how many people are really sat with a CEO, advising and getting in their ears, and well, you being look, if that you look trusted at advisor? All stages
1: of proficiency, commodity supplier a lot of people sit in commodity supplier status, I think.
0: Emer- a lot of Yeah, and a lot of technologies that we would say, oh yeah, it's really clever and it will change your business, it's still commodity shit.
1: Emerging resource is his next one and he says, becoming an emerging resource is the result of a negotiation process in which the commodity suppliers sell their value beyond pure product to other services and resource that they can bring to the relationship. But actually, if you're going to enter later on in the sales cycle, how are you going to step out of the um, uh, task that you've been given to solve. There's not many people are going to step out of that. I think a lot of people are going to be actually stay in commodity. And then he talks about his third one, his problem solver. As a result, they start to see see and talk about issues that aren't immediately connected to a current deal, but are yet to be handled. I don't think many of the salespeople are actually problem solvers either. No. In the way that he describes it. And then obviously, trusted advisor, you know, talk about that all day, really.
0: I don't. I, I, one of the things I often do when we're doing these books for book club is I think to myself whilst I'm doing it of examples in our own world. You know, I look in our world I think in some of our accounts we're a commodity supplier.
1: Yeah, without a doubt.
0: I think in some of our accounts we're an emerging resource. In some, good few of our accounts we are a bit of a problem solver but in only an extremely small amount of our customers are we truly... By that definition a trusted advisor.
1: Well, it says trusted advisors determine what the object of their affection wants to hear. They know what these people want to hear because they, aren't con- because they are consistently better prepared and better informed than their rivals. And it goes on and on and on. But then it talks about, like I say, the H and B was the best example. You know, how much influence can you have? And the problem with that as a salesperson is, if you spend your life doing that, you're not going to close many deals. I don't think.
0: It, so listen to this. Top of page 21, he talks about the salespeople who regularly connect with executives at their level, at their level, because they can sense business knowledge, confidence and competence that those people demonstrates as if the executives of sixth sense and can spot the salespeople who are continually dealing with their peers and in other organisations, said. And I actually wrote at the top, this is all great, but it will be seen, particularly in the current market, that it's a bit antiquated. So, a lot of sales organisations, I think, and, and even though this is a second edition of the book, if you look at a lot, and we've talked about this, and I've talked about it about this whole obsession with blitz scaling yeah. at the moment, that whole thing about having people selling at trusted advisor level, it's not actually how a lot of these organisations are grow. A, a, a lot of our client organisations are growing rapidly.
1: No, they're not. They're employing commodity sales They're
0: employing an army of BDRs, Great. they're automating outreach yeah. to uh, and, and sales engagement, they're automating marketing, and then they've got sales people picking up with campaigns in the middle section, in the middle zone of those campaigns.
1: Well, they're waiting for people to have a budget, aren't they? They're not going, oh, let's influence the chief exec and he might buy some yeah. software in five years they go no, let's just find somebody who wants to buy some CRM software.
0: Yeah, and then let's put a nice, good-looking, likeable, energetic salesman out in front of them at some point when they've get, when they've bitten on a lead from marketing.
1: Yeah, yeah. And
0: actually, that's, we're seeing a lot more of that than we're seeing of this nowadays.
1: Yes, but I don't want to knock the chapter, because the chapter's excellent. No. It's just actually realistically you, you, you know, and it's, applicable, is it, in the real world?
0: Yes, and I think a lot of that is how we're, one of the things he doesn't talk a lot about and I talked about uh, in my notes uh, later on in the book is if you think about the type of technology that is sold now, mm. it's so much easier to make those procurements. We've talked about this before. We, we can we can implement. Anybody can implement any technology very quickly. So firstly, you've got this whole emergence of what they call shadow IT, haven't you? Mm. I.e. marketing departments going out, using operational expenditure, bringing in information technology that the CEO doesn't even really know about, nobody knows about, IT hardly know about, that gets implemented. But if actually it doesn't work, we can can them next month because we're on a monthly rolling contract. Mm -hmm. So actually, fundamentally... The technology landscape has changed a lot, particularly at the business level.
1: I think it's changed more at an IT level. It's interesting. One of the uh, points in this—I in, in, don't know what chapter it's in—but it's a data warehousing company. Yeah, yeah. That's commodity stuff.
0: They'll tell you it's not
1: commodity stuff.
0: Do you think so? Yeah, I data so. warehousing.
1: It is, particularly. With, with I'm trying particularly to
0: work with out if I'm, I'm quiet. And- if I'm quiet, listeners, it's because I'm, I'm just thinking is a data warehousing solution a commodity sale firstly we, we, he, and he talks a lot about the use of the word solution data warehousing solution, not a solution. no it's just the product a bit of software keeps your data in it
1: <laughs> Great, <yeah. laughs> so it's interesting isn't it though but, but you know chapter one
0: and we've almost got to listen to ourselves because you and I are part of that hype no
1: oh, I'm not I don't deal with data warehousing companies they're rubbish all of
0: them
1: <laughs> 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 but chapter one uh, you know just going back to what the title of chapter one is I can't remember look back now When do executives get involved in the decision-making process? That is worth reading.
0: You can tell that it's worth reading because you and I have got a lot to talk about with it. Yeah. Um, And there's a great quote just at the end as a wrap-up. He says, Trusted advisors create deals that offer personal value as well as sound commercial value, and they do so in a way that makes the buyer and the seller interdependent. And I wrote here, wins and results. And the book doesn't talk that much about understanding what's in it for the executive. No, it doesn't. Um, And that's the only time it mentions the personal win for the executive and understanding really the, what's driving a project at a personal not human kind of level there,
1: that's, not, that's not what it's trying to address I don't
0: think no I don't think so um, and then I like these chapter summaries do
1: I, I, you know I put actually you should put that at the start of the, uh, the, start of the chapter I started reading them first
0: yeah, I read a really good photo book the, recently um, on flash photography, and he does this like one page. If you can't be asked reading my chapter, just read this. I always do that.
1: I said this to my daughter who's eleven, who's reading. She, you know, she's really, really into reading. I said to her, "Listen, just just read the last few pages first. So you know what happens? Then it'd be easy for you to put the story together." <laughs> Obviously, she you you wouldn't. But you imagine, right, if you knew the outcome of a story, yeah, it'd be much easier to read.
0: The, Scot- the Flashbook by Scott Kelby, he actually, because he, he knows his readers, he's like, listen, if you can't be asked to read the chapter in full, here's the headlines.
1: So, chapter two is about marketing to the C-suite. I put it a very dense but good chapter. I, I thought this was interesting. Page 28. Good salespeople know that, they're, know that if their first entry into a deal is through a formal request for proposal or tender... They've already lost the upper hand. Yeah. hear that a lot, don't you? I was, talk-
0: I was talking to a candidate the other day, uh, and it was a really straight up story about very relevant to this, was he was saying, I said, why are you leaving your job? And he said, every tender that comes in they make me respond to it. I said, what do you mean? And he said, it's all we do. He said, we get loads of tenders because we're quite a big brand leading organization. But he said, nine out of 10 of them, I know we're going to be shit. And I just sit here all day responding to tenders. And he said, let's get it right. If I've not heard about it, I've not influenced it. Uh,
1: but do you believe that? Because I suspect that if we spoke to that person's manager, he'd say, "I said, what's the method in making in paying that person eighty grand a year, making you know, reply to tenders?" He'd say,
0: "Because one in ten of them, even though we haven't bid for it, we still win anyway."
1: Yeah, and, that's and I don't care candidate. how and
0: I don't care how tired that guy is.
1: Your candidate was the one leaving the job.
0: Yeah, and the manager sat there saying, I don't care if he finds that hard work and boring and tired. Because actually, if he, res- if he responds to 50 tenders this year, he'll probably win four or five of them. An average order value of about 200 grand, and he'll be there or thereabouts to his the point, number.
1: Because I do agree with his sentiment about that. But actually, I think there's probably quite a few people reply to tenders and win them. So mate of is yeah. he's not, he's not an IT salesperson he builds bridges for the council. Right. Interesting character. How do you get all your business? I just reply to tenders. Now, I know it's not IT, it's Bridges, But, I mean, I've seen his house.
0: He's got a nice house.
1: He's got a nice house.
0: And he's, he's just going a, on, OG or, or whatever it he's is. He's
1: got a Rolex watch that was tied to the side of a submarine. Right. To test it. Right. That cost, like, tens of thousands of pounds. Right. And if, if he read that, Andy, 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 his name, if Andy read that, he'd go, yeah, just buy tenders, mate. I've got loads of money. Who cares? Do and I care? I've got loads of money.
0: Absolutely, and he's,
1: got, and he's a commodity supplier. And he's got a massive house and a massive
0: car. And maybe that's the thing about public money. And what's really interesting is, for example, in public money, do you really need to be a C-level sales guy?
1: Well, obviously not, because I meet a lot of them. I aren't many.
0: How many do we meet who are in healthcare? How many do I meet that are true C-level salespeople? Actually, the good ones usually are in healthcare. The, no, the good ones are cute. The good ones go to he- the good ones go to trust board meetings. We're they not, sit then. there. They stalk. They're cute. They're clever. But remember, in, in healthcare, it's a lot easier to get to sea level. In many respects, public sector probably not as easy.
1: Fair enough. So then, on page twenty nine, he's got a little graph or a little table, I should say.
0: Yeah. What do you make of that? What's the What's that all about? Information sources that influence executive by stage of sale.
1: So is there, is Early, there,
0: middle and late.
1: So it's quite, it, it's, it's, yes, very, it's very relevant. I've read it a lot of times. I mean, basically what the table is saying is, he's listing the different, market, he calls them information sources, but we would refer to them as, you know, marketing channels. Marketing, yeah, yeah. Marketing so channels. he's listing those and he's saying, at what point do they affect the exec? 29, that's worth reading. If I was a marketer, I'd read it, but I'm not, so I didn't
0: that's based on their research something that we, we haven't pointed out on the research is some of, quite a bit of the research is focused on Chinese executives yes um, and I, in well, my, there's another table
1: I actually, to be fair I've difference?
0: absolutely totally blocked that out of my brain well that's up to you
1: Jonathan
0: yeah because I'm not really interested in placing salespeople in China and I don't think, think Aaron...
1: do you not want to go after who are we we've got to sell to Chinese
0: people should... <laughs> who are you who are you um, so yeah so what's the number one in, uh, information source that influences executives well, at late stage it's professional social networks that's interesting
1: and then at early, early stage,
0: stage industry specific media exactly and then the next one is search engine Have I just, I'm not as 100% sure of that well,
1: he's based on uh, and then he talks about social proof yes I think social proof is very important isn't it Go on. Well, I think that I, I, you know what's the best lead you ever got? It's always a referral. Always. And that effectively is social proof, isn't it? My mate thinks you're all right, so you should use it.
0: Always. The best leads are always referrals.
1: And that effectively is social proof, isn't it? That's that that that's what referral is.
0: Yeah. As as it, give, it made me very grumpy with myself actually that whole concept because a client, an old client of mine that I've known since literally I first came into recruitment. Has
1: moved.
0: Hey, has moved to a new job recently I was basically king of the world for a global software vendor. He's literally he's like the king of Europe. These three hundred and fifty odd people work for him, and uh, he texted me the other day to say I've introduced you to our head of in-house talent, and I and I was really annoyed with myself because I thought you haven't followed up on that.
1: Yeah, because I that. thought
0: because I thought oh it's in-house talent I'll never get anywhere. It's a big global enterprise software vendor, but he's actually gone and seen the guy and said listen you ought to talk to Johnny Graham.
1: Yeah, you
0: should chase it up. Well, it's trust me, it's in my calendar to chase up now. Okay. Yeah, and then he talks... So, what he's talking about here is just different ways of how marketing changed. You know how for, and he gives this great example of um, it's really cool actually, uh, an original advert for yeah, electro, yeah, yeah. Electrolux, electrolux I, I, fridges. I've got a big smiley face next to it. It made me chuckle, but that is he's actually cited an actual existing. Um, advert of how Electrolux initially sold fridges, um, and the way it was done, and the um, the point is illustrating is how it's changed over time, and how messaging has changed over time. <laughs> Just explain, Pricey, what the, the message so, of this so, advert. So there's a
1: lady with some blinkers on, like, horse
0: <laughs> like blinkers. proper horse blinkers on, like a lady.
1: Well, let, let me let me read the bit that made me laugh. Okay. So, <laughs> so so here we go. So, so this is he said. The image and headline imply the following message. To husbands of the time, if your wife resists change in the age of the horseless carriage, she is like a horse with blinders on. To to the wives of the time, if you don't move with the times, your husband might trade you in for a faster model.
0: And that literally is how the advert is. It's literally, girls, go out and get a fridge or your husband will see you off.
1: Yeah. (laughs) But it's the point about marketing, really, isn't it? It, 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 Yeah. It's more point.
0: And and how he's explaining, you've got these three doors of marketing, door opens, door closes. But I'll tell you where it starts to get interesting. And it is on page 36, where he puts a subsection, which is called, don't wait for marketing to create your leads.
1: Yeah, it's brilliant that.
0: So he talks a little bit about marketing, but what he's actually setting up as he's explaining how different marketing works is he's making a point which is, if you're waiting for marketing to get you in front of a C-level buyer, you're an idiot. And he's very emphatic about that. It's
1: not uncommon for the salespeople to do almost no prospecting. Yep. And he's really annoyed about that.
0: Yes. I I wrote in big capital letters, yes! Um, He says here that... Uh, on the surface, it looks like a fine arrangement. Salespeople who don't enjoy prospecting don't need to, and marketing delivers a steady stream of qualified leads for the salesperson to turn into revenue. Idyllic! Yet, this may have led to a generation of salespeople whose prospecting skills are in atrophy. Michael and I talked about this the other day, and we've talked about it on other episodes of Book Club. I think it's easier to prospect now. I think cold calling is easier than it's ever been. Dead easy. You still get the odd phone down and the odd arsy response. Very rare. But it's very rare. It's very obvious because that don't get many cold calls. It, because. Cold calling has, has uh, and people's cold calling and selling skills have gone into atrophy.
1: That, you know, you can get the mobile number off Lucia. It's perfectly legit. Yeah, you can
0: get, it's easier than ever to get phone numbers. You don't have to blag them out of gatekeepers anymore, no. do you?
1: And what's interesting is, I think the gatekeepers are a lot softer. They're clearly not as much tough for gatekeepers. You no. can just walk straight past them. And, that, and I
0: don't you, think that's because you and I are any more accomplished.
1: No, Well, we're, we're probably less accomplished, because, uh, you know...
0: Because we're knackered, burned out all well, fast. No, well,
1: I'm not. It's, yeah. it's, not the, um, it's not so much that. It's because, actually, I used to make 150 cold calls a day, and I'm, now I make about 25, so inevitably I'm not going to be quite as sharp on it. Uh,
0: he, he makes a good point. He says, It's our observation that de-emphasising a B2B salesperson's responsibility for prospecting at the top of the funnel, where they get the most practice, can limit a rep's ability to draw on those same skills further down the funnel. I think that is so true. I wrote here, prospecting is like taking a cold shower in the morning. It prepares the mind for the other hard parts of the sale, like asking for a continuation or asking, why don't you want to buy it?
1: I think the other part is, what he's saying as well there is, is if you pick up the phone and say, hello, my name is, he's saying at some point you're going to have to navigate your, your way across an organisation. Yeah, You have to work but it if out. If you're used to making cold calls, navigating your way across the organisation is just another cold call. Yeah, It's in your account, but it's cold call, isn't it? And when you look at some of the accounts that we've got, where they're quite big companies, you know, we've got a few Gartner Magic Quadrant leaders, blah, blah, blah. Just because you deal with Bill, doesn't mean Sally's going to take your call. No, nope. She's never heard of Bill. But what's
0: actually. interesting, Pricey, is we, how many guys do we deal with where you talk to a top guy and you'll go, how'd you get that deal? Oh, that one, to be fair, it came from marketing. It was a really nice lead. Landed on my desk, but I did a good job of the campaign. What about that one? Well, actually, that one, I was trying to get into that one. Um, and in the end, I wrote a letter to the CEO... Bloody, bloody, blah, and then I picked up the phone and I cold-called him at nine o'clock at night. And I, and I knew he was still at his desk. And you're like, mm, what, what was your last P60? Oh, it's 320k. And that's the
1: point, because that person cold-calls all day, the cold-call at nine o'clock is just another call. Correct. Whereas if you don't do any cold-calling, the cold-call at nine o'clock is a big massive. And you're sweating at
0: your desk. Yeah, you become inured. But I also think that the fact that you're used to cold-calling, Mike, and this is a really interesting thing, is it prepares the mind for the other hard parts of the campaign. The bit, the bit in the meeting where actually you've got to look the guy in the eye and say, right, are you interested in what we've done? Yeah. Do you like it? Yeah, great. I want you to organise a meeting for me with so-and-so, so-and-so across the business.
1: Possibly, yeah. I don't I don't necessarily think that's the point he's making here, but for sure that's part of it. I think what he's saying is if you used to cold call him, you used to cold call him. Yeah. You could cold call anybody at whatever time.
0: Yeah, you ain't afraid of it. You well, just get on with know, it.
1: It's very relevant, isn't it? And And he says it's time for
0: it's time for salespeople to take back control of their prospecting. This is a
1: chapter on marketing.
0: But his point is actually saying. Do some real prospecting. And what he's saying is you've got to get inside it a little bit. Don't communicate value, create it. And what he's talking about here, most business to business commerce on the internet is initiated by the buyer, not the seller. Salespeople of the future have to create value, not communicate value. Um, And what he's talking about is he's saying, this is the bit where you start getting into really thinking about your approach, what you're doing, how you're delivering value at the start of your approach. And he even gets into, you know, talking about email marketing and open rates. Well,
1: it's interesting, I'm on that table now. He's got a big table about the different open rates of email marketing. Yeah. I'll what would be interesting, actually, as a start, and I'm not going to do it, but I find that maybe this is the right open rate for our email market like anybody else. The open rate of a LinkedIn message must be five times as
0: high. What was that?
1: The open rate of LinkedIn messages.
0: Miles higher.
1: I reckon it's 80%, I would think.
0: Uh, Miles, miles higher. Yeah, that's where LinkedIn add their value, really. I think so, yeah. Because you, you can get people to respond. Delivered. You can get people to respond to him in mails.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: I genuinely think, and he talks about this later on in the book, about investing in your own kit, mm. um, and how ridiculous it is. I, I can never understand. when You talk to a candidate and they say, "Oh, they uh, and you say, "What, what sale? What LinkedIn product do you use?" Oh, I guess you use LinkedIn.
1: Yeah, it's pathetic.
0: You know, sales now is hundred quid a month. But it's a pathetic excuse, isn't it? And his point later on in the book is, if you're a top boy, you just pay for that out of your commission.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. It's not even a conversation item. You don't even ask your boss for it. Um, so he say, and then he gets onto content. He says, if your content is good quality, they won't unsubscribe. So true. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you and I have both found you have have a That's theory. The same thing. You and I both have the same theory, which is. You can cold email anybody if your content is and ti- re- relevant and timely. But if your content is irrelevant and untimely, you will get...
1: Well, you can't, you can't email your best, your best client. Your best client's going to be with you.
0: Yeah. but uh, what, uh, and it, it almost makes a mockery of the whole concept of GDPR, because actually uh, there is that obviously fair use, uh, legitimate use point in GDPR. But the point is actually you can really go cold if you're relevant and timely enough, I think. And if your content's good enough.
1: Page 46 is some nice stuff from Kissmetrics. What page 46 that talks about to improve page impact? I mean, it's into marketing, really, this bit. But I just thought it was interesting when I read through it, actually.
0: Yeah, I mean, what, what I, said, I said. Using
1: it, get started today instead of CR pricing increases action by.
0: So, what he's saying is go out and do your own marketing. What he's talking about here, you know, there's a big, there's a whole big conversation isn't there in the in the IT industry at the moment about what people call shadow IT what he's talking about here is shadow marketing yeah yeah um what I find fascinating is that a lot of people don't feel that they're sufficiently empowered to do their own shadow marketing
1: I'm not surprised by that
0: and are too terrified to do it
1: I don't think it's so much that it's more the fact that people are lazy I've got a marketing department why would I do it
0: no, I don't think it is, Mike. I disagree. I think it, it's that people lack courage. I don't
1: think it is. No, it's
0: a lack of courage, mate. Well, no, be- no, it, it's the reality.
1: But you've both got slightly
0: different. There was so, different I think, but some people are like, well, I can't get this, and marketing won't do that. And you say, just well, do it yourself. But a lot of them just haven't got the courage or the guts to say, no, I'll tell you what, I'm just going to do it myself. I'm just going to get a freelancer and Upwork to create that campaign, and I'm just going to get it out the door. But then again, you would—it's uh, not an un- inconceivable argument to say it's laziness, isn't
1: it? I think people are lazy. Do you? Yeah, hundred percent. Absolutely, hundred percent. People are generally lazy.
0: People want to do the well. What we've seen and is think, people want to do the minimal amount of work to get the maximum bang for their buck. Part
1: of it is, you know, we're now in this ridiculous industry where the salespeople are just
0: too pampered. I, I completely concur. Too pampered.
1: And actually salespeople can say, what's your lead generation machine like? And companies will sell their lead generation machine. Yeah. So the good, so candidates... And if you cast our mind back
0: to our bad old days on Brown, Brown Lane West, could you imagine candidates asking what the lead generation machine was like?
1: Well, they were unsuccessful straight away.
0: What's your lead generation machine like? I'll tell you what my lead generation machine's like. Let's go outside, have a fag and a pint... And then you can ask me after I've had a fag and a pint how you're going to do some cold calling. Whereas our me?
1: snowflakes, who don't pick up the phone, want a good lead gen system. Yeah. So our under Oh,
0: and 100k basic, Mike.
1: Yeah, so our companies you know, <laughs> want to appeal to them. I mean, let's be perfectly clear, Jonathan. <laughs> the big software vendors in the UK. Yeah. Um, they're not UK companies, but big software vendors. They employ young, good looking graduates. Snowflakes. That's what they employ. Yeah. Now, one of them might try and phone us up and sue us or whatever, but I don't see how they can. They employ young, good-looking, intelligent people.
0: Who have never known a tough sales environment.
1: Well, they've never had a tough life, have they? Because where do these young, successful, good-looking people come from? Well, they come from a good university. And how did they get that good university from a good family? And what did their good family do for them? Their good family... Just completely gave them everything they want. Let's be clear. I live in Horsham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's plenty of that where I live. I'm not saying that's not.
0: They've never known tough times ever. That well, and this is a this, oh, to this is a whole bigger conversation. I don't, do It's a whole bigger conversation about um, about politics. And, and, and Lily sat here. Lily and I had a conversation the other day where I said to Lily, and she sort of looked at me like I was a bit bonkers. And I said, uh, "Your generation don't know what unemployment means. Yeah, it's they actually don't know what unemployment is.
1: Lowest unemployment." Right for years. Now a lot of that's fudged with the zero yeah. hours contract, but yeah, absolutely. they don't know what an
0: employment is. Therefore, and I was explaining to Lily that when I first came into the workplace, people could do what they wanted to you, yeah, because you were so grateful to have a job, and you had so little mobility of your labour. when somebody turned around to you and said, "Where the fuck are my hundred and fifty my hundred and fifty cold calls today, you little shit?" And that is literally how my first boss used to speak. Yeah. And I didn't have the option to say, well, Which,
1: oh, crap. What, what about your marketing machine?
0: <laughs> yeah. Why aren't you generating any leads for me? It was literally, I'll tell you how the lead generation machine's going to work. You're going to dial out 150 times today. That's it and all about it.
1: And actually, in fairness to these authors, they're sort of a bit that way, aren't really? Yeah. This thing. Come on, man! Pick anyway, that's the end but of chapter
0: two. That was a fascinating chapter. Um, a, good, uh, a good first, a good first. Yeah. Um, so, thing. get yourselves out, get online, get to Amazon, and by selling to the C-suite. The only problem with selling to the C-suite was no Audible version. I, so I don't
1: use Audible. So I couldn't, kind of
0: I couldn't listen to it whilst walking the dog as a pre-read. Um, but get yourselves out there. It's been a really good show, and we will see you next week. Goodbye.